Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. I do not understand how we are halfway through January. I do. I, I, I've been very busy, Nadia. It has been a very busy time for me. You cannot sit still. It, it drives me crazy because I am someone who, who likes to at least try to take it easy once in a while. And you just, you're like a squirrel. It's like being beside a, a nest of squirrels the whole time. I'm like the dog Doug from uh, Up. Squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> always moving. Always on the move. Speaking of always being on the move, the world of RPGs are always on the move. And we've got a lot of news to be talking through this week. As always, we'll also be continuing our console RPG quest. Yes, the console RPG quest is back. And this week we'll be talking about the Nintendo Wii which has an interesting RPG legacy, I want to say. And finally, we have our track of the week, as always. Okay. But first of all, if you enjoy the podcast, do me a favor. Go and leave a review over on the podcatcher of your choice. A good review will help the visibility of the show and will also make us feel a lot happier, I suppose. And also, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. I have been known to stream at twitch.tv slash TV, And also we have a very active Discord, which you can access for just $1. And finally, if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron. That's over at patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. We're continuing on with our watch of The Witcher on Netflix. We just recently posted episode four as of the recording of this podcast. And we are continuing through our Pantheon of the Blood God game club for Lufia 2 over on the Discord. It's been a lot of fun. Lufia 2 is it's an interesting RPG. Very light on story, Nadia. It is surprisingly light on story. Very heavy on puzzles. And I can see why people enjoy it for that reason. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of Zelda in that respect, I would say. Yeah, great music, too. Always had a great soundtrack. Yeah, I really like the boss music in that game. Yeah, me too. It's a, it's a fun little game, and I'm a little disappointed I missed it the first time around, but uh, now we can rectify mistakes. Yes, that's what the Pantheon Game Club is for. So join us, won't you? Patreon.com slash Pod. Okay, Nadia, let's talk about the RPG news. First up, the big piece of news from this past week, EA has lost the exclusivity to the Star Wars license. Ubisoft will be making, Ubisoft, Ubisoft, I can never be sure what it's going to be, will be making an open world game of itself. Uh, That's not really of huge interest to this podcast. What is interest of us it's the fact that EA never really made a KOTOR 3, Nadia, and it strikes me as a big missed opportunity. EA only started to kind of get the hang of their license at the very end of their term, I suppose. Uh, I still think Disney must have just scruffed them and shook them around after the whole Battlefield 2 incident. Battlefront, rather. <laughs> just choked them around. Ah, no. Yeah, you, you think that EA is big, but I imagine next to Disney it was a kitten. I wrote a article over on Fanbyte talking a little bit, kind of putting into context the whole KOTOR 3 thing. And one of the conclusions that I came kind of came to was KOTOR 3 was probably never going to happen because not only had EA changed a lot by 2012, uh, Bioware had changed a lot by 2012. So for reference, when the year that Disney bought the Star Wars license and then handed off the keys to EA was pretty much the same year that 
the founders of BioWare left and BioWare itself changed a lot in that time. It really did. And not only BioWare and EA, but heck, Star Wars changed a lot in that time. What we grew up with is totally different from what the kids are growing up with now, for better or for worse. I think, though, there's kind of a hinge moment. If EA, if BioWare had decided to make KOTOR 3 instead of tra- chasing Anthem, which Anthem's development started around 2012, 2013, things might have been very different from BioWare and the EA Star Wars lineup in general. It certainly would have given them an anchor game for people to look forward to. It just, it never had that game that people were like, yes, that was going to like really hit hard, if you know what I mean. Oh my God, I completely forgot about Anthem. I mean, so so did everybody else. So did EA, kind of. EA would prefer that you forget about Anthem. I thought they were going to do like a Realm Reborn thing with it, or was that just all hot air? I think they're working on it, but I don't know. Bioware is kind of a mess, honestly, and I think a lot of their resources are already going to Dragon Age and Mass Effect. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think that Anthem is better left forgotten, honestly. <laughs> Me too. I feel like maybe that was a bit of a mistake and Bioware should focus on A bit of a mistake. The- uh, just a small one, a, t- a teeny little oopsie. Nadia, you're doing that Canadian thing where you're just understating everything. <laughs> oh, I think that might have been a bit of a mistake, you know. <laughs> just a little bit of snow, meanwhile, six feet piling up. <laughs> yeah, I think that when it comes to Bioware, they just changed a lot as a studio. They were going for online experiences and EA was going for online experiences. Yeah, everyone has been chasing that always online, always engaged content. I think the real tragedy is that Knights of the Old Republic is never going to actually get made now because I just don't see Disney really wanting to do it at this point with the High Republic stuff coming out. Maybe we'll get a Knights of the High Republic, which could be an interesting take on it. And maybe they'll say have Obsidian do it, which would be kind of cool. And I'm sure Microsoft would be thrilled to have an exclusive Star Wars game on Game Pass. Yeah, I don't see that hurting Microsoft's feelings at all. I'm just glad to see, you know... I, n- I never thought the, the Star Wars license was really exciting under EA. I'm a little interested to see what, what Ubisoft does. Uh, heck, open world Star Wars game is, is going to be more Ubisoft trash, but I kind of like Ubisoft trash. I'm in the mood for it. I'm like Mike in that regard. The problem with EA was that it had very passionate developers who were very who really wanted to make a good Star Wars game, who really, really cared about Star Wars. But the motivations of the company as a whole, as a collective were always so mercenary that it the games that it produced always felt a little bit hollow despite all the love that was put into them. Yeah, absolutely. That's what happens uh, when you work with a huge publisher like EA, who at the time was ex- especially gross about its uh, in-game uh, purchases. And it wasn't until later with Jedi Fallen Order and especially Star Wars Squadrons that these projects were actually made with from a place of passion, from people who really wanted to make them. As opposed to a place of, well, you know, we want to make a game that's an online platform that's going to be able to make money over a long period of time and will please our investors. And it showed, but it was a lesson learned, maybe a little too little, too late for EA. But EA hasn't lost a Star Wars license and EA is doing their best to put a brave face on things. And <laughs> I've, I've talked to EA developers and they wanted to highlight that working with a Star Wars IP is actually very complicated. And I don't doubt that. I'm sure that... They probably floated ideas past Disney, and Disney was like, nope, can't do it. Yeah, I absolutely would not want to work with Disney. I mean, we remember how we had discussions about Kingdom Hearts 3 and what the developers said about working with Disney there. 
and how much more strict mm-hmm. they are now and how perfect everything has to be to their specifications. That's what happens when you work with a license. Oh, yeah. Speaking of licenses, Cyberpunk 2077 just won't go away, Nadia. The discourse is still kind of in the orbit of uh, social media. They came out and talked finally about the horrible state of the game on consoles. Yeah, and they still managed to make people mad in the process, Nadia. <laughs> they did. They, they're they very good at making people mad. The apology, it wasn't even really an apology. It was just a, it's hard to describe, but what a lot of people are irritated about is that it kind of threw QA under the bus. It said, at the same time, they said, don't be mad at the developers of the game. You know, management was the problem, which it absolutely was. At the same time, uh, I think QA had a lot to work with and they did their best and everything just turned out terrible. There was an interesting point that was brought up in the video itself saying, okay, it's one thing to make an open world game where everything is flat, i.e. The Witcher 3, but Cyberpunk was a game full of tall, tall buildings in in a big, big world and they basically bit off more than they could chew and they just kept on chewing to, to everyone's dismay nevertheless well when they're talking about old consoles and uh, kind of throwing qa under the bus even though i don't really think they intended to disrespect qa the way they ended up doing it makes me think that really cd project should stop talking at this point and just get down to the business of fixing their freaking game i think that's best at this point especially since i th- believe one thing that made people mad another thing rather and something that made me a little irritated is how the playstation 4 was being referred to as like this old problem like oh this old problem console uh old gen old gen old gen and the playstation 4 we're not talking about the xbox 360 here we're not talking about adapting the game to the wii we're talking about a console that's still in many 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 living rooms and many many people would have bought that game on that console besides pc i suppose and you're just kind of dismissing it. Like, oh, well, it was the console's fault. This The hardware's so old. What are you going to do? No, that's not really an excuse. Yeah, they started developing this thing properly in like 2016. And if you go back and listen to our CD Projekt uh, retrospective and things, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they did a huge amount of pre-production over the course of like five years and ultimately threw a huge chunk of that away That's just poor planning on their part. And I mean, we've seen many games that look really good on the PlayStation Pro that frankly, in some ways look better than Cyberpunk 2077. Like I would say that Uncharted, okay, it's a different game. Let let me just throw that away. It's a different game. CD Projekt, Cyberpunk is trying to do something completely different. I get it. But my point is, is that poor planning was a huge reason why this game was ultimately such a failure on current-gen consoles. And I will say current-gen consoles because the new consoles, the PS5 and the Xbox Series X, just showed up. They just showed up. They're still largely inaccessible to much of the population. I have I have tried to get a PS5, no hope in hell, until maybe later this year when the scalpers... Are, the scalpers are finally starting to lose interest a little bit, but it's still hard to get one. So that's why I said these people were going to buy the game for the PlayStation 4. And I mean the PlayStation 4, not the Pro. So yes, that is very poor planning. I understand you want the game to look fantastic, uh, like just fantastic and spectacular on PC and PS5 and, and the new Xbox and everything like that. But that's not the that's not the reality for console owners. So maybe it would have been better to just leave out the PlayStation 4 altogether instead of crunching everyone against the wall and making excuses at the end of it all. Yeah, that's what I was saying on Twitter, Nadia. I was saying that maybe if, in hindsight, it's all hindsight, obviously, but they it sounded like they struggled quite a lot to get Cyberpunk running at all 
on current gen consoles, especially the base models. And there has to be a certain point where you go, do you cut your losses? Do you say this game is just not going to work on base consoles? Why don't we present it as a next gen game and be able to retain our reputation and just count on the fact that it's going to have a very long tail in terms of sales and from expansion packs and everything that will ultimately make up for the losses of not being able to sell to people who have a base console. I think we've talked about this before. Witcher 3 had some of its best sales in 2020 when the Netflix show came out, which, by the way, go listen to our television of the Blood God rewatch. It's only available for $5 patrons. (laughs) Sorry. It's fun. Yes. My point being that there is a real short-sighted attempt to grab as much money up front as possible. And in the and in the process, they did a lot of damage to their reputation. I think so. And we have discussed this in past shows. I really think, as you said, hindsight is twenty twenty, of course. But I really think they should have canceled the PlayStation 4 version. Yes, made a lot of people mad. But in the end, it would have done so much less harm to what has happened. And it would have saved them so much energy and so much time and effort because now they're promising to bring the PlayStation 4 version up to code. So you got to do all of that. And you still have to develop the DLC you're promising, the online you're promising, and you and you have this reputation already for crunching your employees. Uh, they have a hard road ahead of them if they want to, to bring back the reputation they once had. So CD Projekt, here's my advice for you. Stop talking. <laughs> but in the meantime... Masahiro Sakurai, who is the main developer of Super Smash Brothers, apparently, I get, get this, was deeply moved by the Subred Punk 2077 refunds and actually has kind of a high opinion of the game, uh, played it on PC uh, and also on console and said that he was very impressed with it uh, in many ways in PC, was amazed by its scale and its scope. So CD Projekt still has one fan. Yeah, I do have to say, if you're a developer who's been put through the ringer for this game, there has to be some pride and relief in hearing that Sakurai, of all people, praised your game and its, and its programming and acknowledged all the hard work that went into it. And he even said, and Sakurai's absolutely right about this, he cannot imagine making a AAA game like that for several consoles, and he already gives like all of his life to making Smash what it is, so he knows what it's like to, to work your butt off. I, I think that was a nice interview. If I recall correctly, it was in the latest Famitsu. I like that he has a column where he talks about other games. That's really cool. So I think that that's a kind of a nice little bit of positivity for a game that's had a lot of negativity surrounding it. I like that Sakurai is just really still into games and comes at it from the perspective of a fan. And I think that really shows in Smash Brothers in a lot of ways. Yes. Um, I know developers, uh, especially big name, high up developers, are extremely busy people and they're their lives are basically dedicated to making games. So I really like it when someone like Sakurai or Iwata, when he was alive, would talk about games and how much they still loved them. And, oh, I, I played this game lately. It was a lot of fun. I really like this part. I like that part. I think that's really important for the industry and it's important for, for them too, to experience what games are going on in the modern market. And also Sakurai, I mean, he recognizes, just as a developer himself, recognizes the scope and scale and the ambition of cyberpunk and maybe can appreciate it on that front. Well, we can also look at cyberpunk and go, yeah, no, the scale and the scope of this game is incredible, but they bit off way more than they could chew. But okay, cyberpunk is a boring game to talk about and I'm done talking about. Let's talk about a game that we do care about. Final Fantasy VII Remake. So here's this. Here's the thing, Nadia. Square Enix trademarked 
Ever Crisis and The First Soldier. And it sure sounds like Final Fantasy VII Remake's spinoffs may be incoming. I am zero, zero surprised here. I have said that they do need to pay more attention to Crisis Core if it is going to be part of the remake timeline, which it clearly is. I just hope, as people are saying, they don't turn it into another compilation of Final Fantasy VII disaster where they had a whole bunch of irrelevant material outside of Crisis Core. Uh, I wonder if this is a stopgap until the next remake part or what they have planned for this. I think that just reading between the lines, I predict that the first soldier is an anime of some sort or some kind of like secondary media. Right. That would make sense because the first order, which was part of compilation of Final Fantasy VII, was an anime. It was way better than Advent Children. I really enjoyed it. So if they have another anime in that vein, yeah, I'm, I'm down with it. I'm cool. I can't blame you for getting all the names mixed up, Nadia, because at this <laughs> point, the Final Fantasy VII and media empire is so sprawling and confusing that people were going through and going, looks like Dirge of Cerberus before Crisis, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> Advent Children. The way you described it there, a media empire, that's it. That's what it is. So, And not only is it yeah. a media empire, as you said, all the names sound alike. Stop doing this to us, Square. As for Ever Crisis, it does sound kind of like a multiplayer game. Uh, yeah, I wonder how that will go. 15 had that multiplayer game that I have no idea if anybody played it. We played it. It was kind of fun. We did. We did play it together. It was weird. I was John Cena. <laughs> Square Enix sure did. Square Enix sure did. Uh... Spend resources on that game, didn't they? They sure did. And it was actually part of 15 stories, I recall. So, um, hooray. I guess if you want to do a multiplayer game, go ahead. I can't say no. You do 14 and it's great. But I I don't know how this is going to turn out. As for, I, I don't know, Ever Crisis sounds like Evergreen. I can't imagine myself being that interested in a Final Fantasy multiplayer game. Here's the thing. Focus on what you're good at. Stop trying to make Final Fantasy what it isn't. There's such a thing as understanding what your particular game is. And yes, you can try to expand within those bounds and find new expressions of it. But trying to make a freaking multiplayer game in the Final Fantasy universe just strays too far from the core of the appeal of Final Fantasy. Stop doing it. Yeah, people turn to Final Fantasy VII in particular for a single player experience. Please give them that experience because there's there's so much content you can work with that I would love to see. For example, uh, please give us the part two already or give us some news on it. I, I'd love that. If you do want to give us a spinoff with Zack, that's cool too. But I don't care about going online in the Final Fantasy VII universe. It's just not a universe I want to go online in. In the meantime, we have one of our first delays, Nadia. Hogwarts Legacy, the new Harry Potter RPG, has been delayed to 2022, which is not surprising in the least, honestly. Not just because of the pandemic, but because if I were them, I would want to kind of get clear of everything that's been happening around J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Me too. Uh, shes I haven't checked her noise in a long time, but I assume she's still saying turfy things. I don't know if anyone can stop her. She's very powerful. Nate, nobody can stop nobody her. Can stop she her. just keeps going. She's a kaiju now, a kaiju who spouts hate. <laughs> so I understand maybe they want to give things a little time to cool off. Not a bad idea. And of course, I'm sure COVID has not helped development. We are going to see a lot of delays this year. We talked about that last year. Buckle up and don't count on anything. And But don't give developers a hard time because we're all going through a very hard time right now. Yeah, Hogwarts Legacy is... It looks like a really big game, honestly. And so 
you're going to want to take the time to get this thing polished up and looking really good and everything. And just working from home is so disruptive. I had developers tweeting at me when I commented on how it was going to be the first of many delays, just being like, yeah, you can't even imagine how how disruptive this pandemic has been when it comes to actual development. It's hit at every level of production. So I fully expect many more RP, uh, many more games in general to be delayed into 2022 and beyond. It, it's going to have reverberating effects on the whole generation, I think. Yeah, there's no way we can avoid it. I really take it for granted how used to, uh, how used to working from home I am and how you are as well. But it's so different for people. And I've talked about that in the past, how some people probably don't have the office space at home. I know people who are basically withering away because they need that social office interaction and need that environment to work. And it's just not working out for them to sit at home. So I, I feel for them, too. I really do feel for the developers. I feel for everyone trying to, to make it through this. They're hard times. We'll, we'll get there, though. Yeah, I think that we have at least another year of this, not to be too grim. And I really feel for everybody who is just sitting at home alone, unable to go out. I just want to say that Nadia and I hear you and we are thinking of all of you and we're, we hope that you're okay. We really do. And uh, we hope you get the vaccine quickly. I have no idea what's going on with the vaccines here. So I have no idea what's going on with me. Yeah, well, that's a whole nother issue. Tell me about it. Finally, we have some Pokemon news, Nadia. It's a game that has not been delayed. We have a new Pokemon Snap. It is coming out on April 30th for Nintendo Switch. And you already seem like very invested in it, Nadia. You're like, I'm in, I'm in. I think the new Pokemon Snap looks very cute. I guess it's just an on-rails picture taker shooter thing, whatever you want to call it. But I like the idea of watching Pokemon in their natural habitat. You can see in the new trailer how they move and interact with each other. And I love how there's a little shot of there's a Torchic that cooks its berry before it eats it like those like the dragons from uh game of thrones i thought that was adorable so i'm looking forward to a game full of cute pokemon interactions i think by the time april rolls around we're all gonna need it i think that they're just rolling running back the n64 game and i think that will go over just fine with the people who grew up with the n64 and are probably just wanting to be able to revisit their childhood with a game that will ultimately probably be pretty short yeah, I am wondering how it's going to be content length wise. I do hope it's longer than the N64 game, but I can't really say for sure what's going to happen. Yeah, who knows? But it does look pretty. It does look very nice. Um, there's a shot of like a whale lord cresting the waves, I think was really cool. I, it does look very nice. I like Pokemon, just uh, observing them as animals. It's I missed my calling by not getting into zoology. There's so many that. Pokemon now, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds. And we saw a what looked like a Gigantamax version of a Meganium, Meganium. from Pokemon Gold and Silver, which was kind of cool. I hope that it has some ties into Pokemon Sword and Shield in some way that if you play it, like you can get some Pokemon that wouldn't normally be in Sword and Shield. I think that would be a really good link up and it would be a good way to ensure that Sword and Shield re- retains that status it has as a an ongoing game where people are still checking in and playing it because they still are to do raids and stuff like that. And the Pokemon Snap link up, if there was one, would be a very, very good idea. I thought it was interesting that they specifically featured Meganium because Meganium is not available in Sword and Shield. So I wonder if that was a hint. Ah, that could be a hint. I thought Meganium was like one of the least popular starters or something. Poor Meganium. It is. Most people will be like, oh, uh, Chikorita, one of the worst. But you know what? I always pick Chikorita when I'm playing sort of gold and silver. So take that. Do you really? I, I always go for Totodile. I mean, I like Totodile. Oh, no, I don't like Totodile. I hate Totodile. Why? I like Cyndaquil. Cyndaquil's cute. But why would you hate, why would you hate Totodile? He's so cute. 
Uh, I don't know. Like, I just find him to be an annoying little crocodile creature, but too hyper for my taste. I, I like the cute mouse creature and I like Chikoritas. So Chikoritas bold and fun. I like I like alligators. So I guess I'm not surprised at myself. There you go. OK, final piece of news, Nadia. I have a column over at Rock Paper Shotgun. If you go check it out, it's called The Limit Break. It comes out fortnightly because this is a British publication. <laughs> and my first topic was about the new RPG renaissance and talking a little bit about why action, modern action games so desperately want to be an RPG and how it all ties back to the very essence of video games. I think it's worth a read. So you should go check it out over on Rock, Paper, Shotgun. You absolutely should check it out. And I'm glad you are still writing about RPGs. That is something I'm a little worried about getting out of practice with is I'm not writing as much as I used to beyond the projects I'm working on. But those aren't the intensive writing I would do every day under US Gamer. Well, maybe we will launch a website and rectify that, Nadia. I think we should. I think that even though I'm kind of like, oh, when I have to sit down and write something, eventually when I get going, I get going. I'm happy <laughs> I did something. Yeah, I think I already mentioned that uh, article that I sold for KOTOR. Like I basically was sitting around. I'm like, oh, this news about Star Wars is interesting hmm it's too bad that ea never made kotor 3 and that got my the wheels in my head turning and the next thing i knew i sold a 1500 word article over to fanbite and i was like why am i doing this i'm too busy but i want to write about this <laughs> yeah i need to get in that habit again people people seem to like my writing i'm not gonna be you know i'm not trying to humble brag here i just think that i like writing and i like when people write, read my writing and i like that people enjoy my writing so i should keep doing my writing your writing's excellent, Nadia. You're one of the funniest writers I've ever met. Aw, thank you. I'm glad I can make people laugh, especially in this hell world we're living in right now. Okay. On that note, it's time to continue on to the console RPG quest. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, it's time to continue on with the console RPG quest, the segment in which we explore the RPG histories of every single console that we can possibly think of. We've been doing this for like 100 episodes at this point, just periodically trundling through RPG history. We most recently tackled the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One in service of the fact that the Xbox Series X and the PS5 are coming out, but now we're circling back. We are going back to... The period about, oh, 15 years ago at this point, if you can believe that, when the Nintendo Wii came out. Nadia, what is your memory of the Nintendo Wii? I went to New York City to line up for the Wii at the Nintendo store. What was that like? That was a very ex that was a very enjoyable experience because number one, the weather was not too cold. When you're waiting in line, you don't want cold weather, God knows. Number two, I was with some good friends of mine and my husband, and we all lined up together and enjoyed ourselves. And this was right in the center of Times Square. So I think it was my first time in New York City, and I got to just enjoy the sights for myself and see, as I said, Times Square, the giant Disney store they had. Oh, there was a lot of really interesting stuff back then that's kind of gone now. Giant Toys R Us, for example. So we waited in line for, it was several hours, but the time went by quickly. And uh, we got the Wii and I got the, uh, I got Zelda with it. And then I took a long ass train ride home and 
I remember my manager calling me the next day that when, sorry, she called me when I arrived at home and said, yeah, we don't have enough customers tomorrow, so you can take the day off. And I was just like, yes. So I had the whole day with my Wii and Zelda and Wii Sports, and that was a good day. What a wonderful day. It was very nice. I've never been in an actual line to pick up a console because... Uh, I don't know. I'm just not the kind of person who can spend all night sitting in a giant line waiting to pick up a product. I'd rather just pick it up whenever it's available. I actually swore off console releases with the Wii U because I did the same thing. I went with the same friends, went with my husband, went to New York. But by then I had seen New York several times. It was freezing. I froze my ass off. There was a huge delay for some reason. And it was the Wii U at the end of it all. So <laughs> I said, I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> so I said, that's it. No more console launches. But then you all sent me out to the, uh, the Switch console launch. But that was indoors. That was at a mall nearby. So I was, in, I was inside the whole time. And it was still sucked. But at least it was warm. And I said something. I tweeted something like, haha, I'm waiting indoors, suckers. And Bill Trennan retweeted that. <laughs> so I thought that was great. Well, as for me... I was living in Japan at the time. I was desperate for every single piece of Wii news. I was very excited about it. Uh, I was back to being an avid Nintendo fan girl after the GameCube era. I'm sorry. I remember. <laughs> I uh, and I remember that the Wii was practically impossible to get at the time because just they were selling like crazy. People were all in on Satoru Iwata's Blue Ocean. And it was the hottest ticket in late 2006 and into 2007. And then my friend Jim comes to visit me in Japan. And Nadia, guess what he had with him? I hope it was a Wii. It was a Nintendo Wii for me. He found one and brought it over to Japan. So that Aww. was an amazing gift, Nadia. What a nice friend. I know, right? Wasn't that an, it was an incredible gift. So I had a Wii. And one of the first things that I actually really enjoyed. So the first time I ever played the Wii, like everybody else, I was playing Wii Sports. Like everybody else, you know, you get the motion controls and there was always a kind of an aspect of play acting with that thing where you would be like, yeah, I'm actually holding the baseball bat yes. like I would a baseball bat and I'm swinging as hard as I can. And I'm like sweaty and exhausted after playing Wii Sports for a while. And then there gets to be a point where you're like, eh, eh, eh. You sit on the couch. <laughs> the little, eh. <laughs> you sit on the couch and wave your hand back and forth. I'm playing tennis, whatever. But I had a lot of good times with my Wii, Nadia. I enjoyed Super Mario Galaxy. I played Smash Brothers Brawl. Um, I played a fair number of RPGs, if I recall correctly. You know, in the window when it first came out, the, the Wii seemed like a great idea because people just didn't have HDTVs yet. That was a very interesting point about the Wii's history is that, number one, I believe one of the reasons it took off so tremendously is because it was much cheaper than the 360 or the PS3 at the time. And nobody really cared about the fact it had no HD support because a lot of people didn't have HDTVs by then. But that gradually started to change as the Wii aged, it certainly started to look its age. Uh, by that point, too, third-party developers had kind of given up on it because, again, no HD development. And it was not a powerful system. It was, as you said, a blue ocean system meant to kind of bring games for everybody. And that's what it did. I mean, we we Sports was a tremendous for bringing everyone together and playing video games. It was a, just a, a huge surge of, of video games being all over the media. It was a huge moment for Nintendo because with the GameCube, they had been trying to compete pretty directly 
with the Xbox and the PlayStation 2, and it just hadn't worked. And if they had tried it again, I don't think it would have worked then either. I think that ultimately Microsoft and Sony were too big, right? And maybe there wasn't enough room in the market for three consoles that were all trying to do the same thing. So I think that Nintendo was really smart to pivot the way they did with the Nintendo Wii, and it paid enormous dividends for them. And if you look back on where things were at the time, smartphones didn't exist yet in 2006, 2007. So there was a huge untapped casual gaming market that had never really been accessed before. And, you know, Iwata saw it pretty clearly. And, you know, all of our parents ended up buying Nintendo Wiis and playing Wii Sports on date nights. Yeah, Wii Fit was a huge success as well. And you mentioned how casual games weren't so much of a thing back then. And that was, skipping ahead just a little bit, that was a huge mistake with the Wii U because Nintendo thought all these people would be loyal to them and follow them to the Wii U. But no, that's when games started to come out for the web and smartphones. Like Farmville changed everything. So that's where people went for their really cheap, really easy casual game fix. And uh, well, that they learned a lesson. <laughs> they learned a very bad lesson that year. Yeah, I mean, the Wii was the home of shovelware, right? I mean, one of the best... People were so irritated that carnival games, of all things, <laughs> sold absurdly well on the Nintendo Wii, where games like Sin and Punishment 2 would come out and people would be just ignore them. And you're like, but Sin and Punishment 2 is really good. Play it. <laughs> yeah, that was a major problem with the Wii and that really original games, really cool, unique games like uh, Little King Story got completely ignored while, as you said, that, that smug-ass Carnival Games barker would just grin out at you from the shelf of EB Games on every freaking shelf. I think that was where we started to see the kind of the major clash between the gatekeeper culture of traditional video game fandom and, you know, kind of the broader mainstream culture. And I think that's when video game culture started to suffer some major growing pains, I want to say. Yes, there was certainly a divide and the term casual gamer became just this, this ew sort of word like you're not a real gamer, you're a casual gamer. And as you said, the gatekeeping started to the gate started to be thrown up. If you like Pokemon, you're a casual, even though Pokemon can be one of those hardcore RPGs out there. Oh, if you like something that's cute and fun, whatever, you're a casual, you're not worth talking to. Uh, it got a little bit stupid, frankly. I just remember the backlash in 2007, I want to say, where during e Nintendo's E3 press conference, basically the main thing that they were showing was Wii Fit and everything related to Wii Fit. And oh. people were like, but where are the games I want to play? <laughs> yeah, I remember that conference. That was, was that the one with the Wii heartbeat? Uh, the Vitality <laughs> Sensor? Yeah, that's it. I would have loved to know, frankly, where Iwata was going with that. We never did find out. Another problem with the Wii is that the dang motion control, like they were fun for a while, but they were so limited that developers never really found interesting things to do with them, despite everything they would try. So we saw weird things like, uh, I think you mentioned Dead Rising, Chop Till You Drop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which had few, far fewer zombies on screen. You had games like Resident Evil that became light gun games on the Nintendo on the Nintendo Wii. There were a lot of ports from the GameCube and the PlayStation 2 that tried to shoehorn in motion controls in some way. But there were like a very bare handful of actually good motion control games on the Wii. Yes, I think in true Nintendo fashion, 
Nintendo was the only one who really got a handle on its weird idea and really did great things with it. And everyone else was just fumbling around going, what? Uh, uh, okay. Uh, things did get better with the, uh, what was the motion control plus attachment. But by then, mm-hmm. I think motion controls had really fallen out of favor. It didn't help that everyone who was really irritated about casual games versus hardcore games were now dealing with Sony doing the move and uh, and of course the Connect. Remember the press conference with the Connect and and Skittles and <laughs> and Milo. Nintendo was playing 4D chess and completely wiping out Microsoft's uh, game development capacity for the next decade by getting them to embrace motion controls. You're right. That was totally 4D chess. I call it now. You're out. You're. It is a conspiracy now. <laughs> Yeah, you want to figure it all out. It's like, not only will I make a ton of money on casual games, I will get our rivals to embrace it and not do it as well as we did. Yeah, the Kinect was, uh, as I said, you'd be surprised where you will find it. Sometimes you will find it in, in like museum exhibits. I mentioned a long time ago seeing a museum exhibit in the Royal Ontario Museum where there's a, a little game where you could kind of fight dinosaurs and it was cute and it was powered by the Kinect. So <laughs> there you go. The thing that I remember the Wii the most for these days, outside of the motion controls and everything, is the virtual console, believe it or not. Yes. Which, so back in 2006, or which was pretty much the heyday of 1UP, which is when we were both either writing for 1UP or following 1UP actively, uh, a little podcast called Retronauts got started. And I was listening to Retronauts at that time um, on the train going to work. And there would always be vetching about... The virtual console and how, first of all, the pricing was kind of out of whack when they were charging, what, five bucks for an NES game? Yeah. And they were like, there's so much potential for this thing, but it's so limited. What the heck, Nintendo? Yes, the virtual console, it was fascinating when they first unveiled it alongside the Wii because it was such a cool idea. No one had ever really considered that. Like, downloading games was still a little bit of a new a new thing and getting to download retro games like wow that what a great idea because i mean at that point it wasn't easy to play retro games unless you took out your old nes and hooked it back up so we were really excited about that and unfortunately as retronauts has has rightfully fetched about as you said it was never quite taken it, it was never quite used to its full potential especially in north america i hear things were much better in japan but as for north america eh but at the same time, there are a lot of games there that you can't find anymore anywhere since the shop closed down. Like, Chrono Trigger was on there. Where are you going to find Chrono Trigger now? I don't know. We're kind of spoiled now because games are so readily available in so many contexts. But at the time, really, the only way to play a game like the original Super Mario Brothers was either buying the little NES classics on the GBA or just emulating it. Like these old NES games in many ways were just not readily available. So it was a huge novelty to be able to download them onto the Nintendo Wii and just have them there. And I remember really clearly there was a night where I got together with some friends over in Japan and we just played through the original Mario Brothers while drinking and everything and having an amazing time. And it was just like, wow, cool. The virtual console can do this. It felt like a strange, it strangely felt like a next gen experience, even though it was, you know, very retro at the time. <laughs> no, I know exactly what you mean. As I said, downloading games was still novel by then. And gosh, it was just so incredible to go back and play those old games I hadn't played in years by that point and that they were just available at the 
point of a remote and a click of a button. It just blew my mind. It was a great time for retro gaming. And it was also, I remember, and like we'll get to the RPGs in a bit, but I remember when Nintendo was making Metroid Prime 3, they made Virtual Console as part of kind of the marketing campaign because that w- they also released Super Metroid at that time. And then everybody was uh, got back into Super Metroid and were playing it. And it was super fun. Like we were all talking about it online and everything. It was a really healthy boost for the retro game market. And I'm glad it happened because so many people have missed out on retro games or they didn't grow up with them. And here was a really relatively cheap alternative. Of course, the pricing wasn't perfect, but that's a whole other story. Relatively cheap an easy alternative that I think is also good. You look at things like Games Done Quick now, I think it was maybe Virtual Console that gave a chance for these people to really get into these games and and claim them as their own and really tear them apart in a loving way. One of the reasons that I held on to my Wii for quite a while also is that Square Enix eventually released a bunch of uh, SNES RPGs on there, including Final Fantasy VI and Secret of Mana, and at the time, those games were somewhat hard to get hold of. And so I was like, well, I'm going to hold on to my Wii because I can easily play the SNES versions of these games on it. Yes. And unfortunately, the Wii U virtual console was comp- just a disaster compared to the Wii, which already was missing a lot of great games. You could play Mystic Quest on the Wii. <laughs> That's wild. And honestly, uh, for all of the hate that it gets, it's kind of a fun game. Fantastic soundtrack. I loved that I could play Rondo of Blood for the first time on the Wii. Yes. That was so cool. That was a very, very big deal. I think the hilarious thing about that is I'm pretty sure Parrish bought a legitimate copy of Rondo. And like the next day, Nintendo said, hey, guess what's coming to Virtual Console? And Parrish was just like, there you go, everyone. You're welcome. I remember everybody really wanted Earthbound on the Wii Virtual Console. And it just didn't happen and didn't happen and didn't happen. And finally, it came out on the 3DS. Was it the 3DS or was it the Wii U? I remember it being... It, it came out on both eventually. <gasps> okay. I don't remember which one it was first, but it, it just would not come out on Wii for the longest time. Yes. Uh, it coming out to the Wii U was an extremely big deal because that was the first official release, if I'm not mistaken, for North America. But beyond, of course, the cartridge. I mean, the original Mother did. Oh, that's right. They had a whole... See, that Mother was... Zero. Zero. That was the really interesting and underutilized part of the virtual console is all this potential for these untranslated games to get translated for the American market for the first time. We saw that with, as you said, Earthbound Zero. I think there were some Turbo Graphics RPGs that got that treatment as well. I don't think Rondo of Blood got a translation. I don't think it needed to. Uh, but the point is we could have had more opportunities to play foreign games and they just it just did not happen nearly as often as it should have. We also got Ogre Battle we on did. the Wii Virtual Console, which was pretty cool. So when we look at back on the Wii's RPG output, there is one game that stands above them all, and we've talked about it quite a bit on this particular podcast, though it never made it into our top twenty-five RPG countdown. It got an HD remaster just last year, and we did a whole episode about that, so you should go listen to it. But Xenoblade Chronicles, which was kind of the holy grail for RPG enthusiasts for at least a couple years. In 2011, I was working for GamePro, and just everybody was obsessed with three games, Xenoblade Chronicles, The Last Story, and Pandora's Tower. The hype around these games became so strong that they kind of took on a life of their own in many respects. And it became a whole kind of campaign. It was called Operation Rainfall, which was this big online movement to get Nintendo to localize these three RPGs that people really, really wanted. 
yes, Operation Rainfall, even though Nintendo will say they did not influence the release of these games, of course they did because Operation Rainfall generated a lot of talk around the fact Nintendo was not localizing these games, which were out in Europe or coming out in Europe by that point. And for some reason, I will never know why, just because Nintendo is Nintendo, I suppose, they had a real bug up their butt about localizing certain RPGs. Uh, They just did not want to do it until Operation Rainfall pushed and pushed and pushed. And to this day, I'd love to know why. I looked it up. And Nintendo was giving lame-ass excuses like, oh, we're busy um, we're, we're busy localizing Epic Yarn, Kirby's Epic Yarn, because that's a great <laughs> saga, I suppose, full of t- tons and tons of text that takes a lot of time to localize. Nintendo just was all, uh, whatever, we don't care. You know, people talk about how Nintendo's kind of an asshole today. They've always, always been this way. I think, okay, so this was kind of late in the Wii's life cycle at this point, about five years about five years on. So the thing that always kind of surprised me was that Nintendo didn't want to put as many games out as possible because the Wii, it was slim pickings for the Wii by 2011. Yeah, it definitely was. And another thing I read is that Nintendo was quite busy trying to get the 3DS up to snuff because, uh, yeah, this was around 2011. So it was late in the life cycle of the Wii U. But gosh, Xenoblade Chronicles, the very least I knew for sure, was was thoroughly localized in Europe even though it has like the most British localization in the universe, which is part of what makes it fantastic. And it's continued to affect it to this day. Oh, it is. If you gave me Xenoblade Chronicles without the British voices, I would say, no, sir, this is not Xenoblade Chronicles. Take this back. Take this back from me. Xenoblade Chronicles was quite pretty for the time, despite not being in HD. Certainly one of the best looking RPGs on the Wii. And at the time, the system was extremely lacking for any open world experiences, which Xenoblade kind of was an open world. I mean, at least it gave that impression when you saw the giant landscapes and the terrain and everything. Yeah, like Gower Plains is definitely an open world of its own and has fantastic music to go along with it. And as for the last story, that was when Mistwalker came over to the Nintendo Wii after a run over on the Xbox 360. And the last story in many ways reflected kind of where JRPGs were at that moment because there seemed to be a little bit of an embarrassment at the idea of being a turn-based experience. Uh, it was kind of seen as a outdated or old-fashioned notion, which is why last story did its best to incorporate action as much as possible. Yes, and the same can certainly be said for Xenoblade Chronicles, which also did not have a traditional turn-based battle system. It was very much more based on MMORPGs at the time. I remember people saying at the time Xenoblade Chronicles was like Final Fantasy XII, but good. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch! I love them both. I do. I I think, you know, in hindsight, maybe I will give Final Fantasy XII just the slightest of edges over Xenoblade Chronicles, but I think they're about in the same tier. They definitely are. They're both fantastic RPGs with really, really imaginative worlds, and that's why I love Xenoblade so much, and that's why I fell in love with it to begin with. It's such an imaginative world, just the idea of existing on these these titans that might or might not be alive, and one belongs to the humans, the other side belongs to the, the Mechonists, and they really take that to... Uh, take that uh, that idea to the stratosphere with Xenoblade Chronicles 2 and that's why I love that game so much so it really just grabbed me from the start and I was so glad that it came out in the North America the weird thing about the Wii was that in so many ways it was just a natural extension of the PS2 generation um, 
there was a indie indie developer whose name escapes me at this moment who infamously called it quote two GameCubes duct taped together. Oh, that was Luke Smith, and that's what it was. It it, that's what was. it was. Honestly, it, it was two two maybe maybe more accurately two PlayStation twos duct taped together with motion controls. Yeah, and so that carried on for a long time, and I would say that. By 2007, when the seriously impressive games started to arrive on the 360 and the PS3, it really showed. Like, when you play Call of Duty Modern Warfare for the first time, or you played Bioshock for the first time, it was really freaking hard to go back to the Wii. It kind of was. The first time I saw Bioshock on my brother's HGTV, because I didn't have an HGTV at the time, but I did have a 360, and I brought over Bioshock and I saw it for the first time, and that intro with Andrew Ryan narrating to you and you see Rapture and I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe what I'm seeing here. I would, but nevertheless, I had a Wii and a PlayStation 2 all the way up until I left Japan in 2009. So I was, I was playing both of them quite a bit. I did not have an HD TV. And uh, there were a couple of games that came out in just in Japan that I ended up really enjoying. One of them was an SD Gundam G-Generation game, Ooh. which I... I think it was literally just called G-Generation. I could be wrong. G-Generation World? Whatever. Either way, it was on the Nintendo Wii. That was where I played it. And I really enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. If you like Gundams, and you like strategy RPGs, and you like just collecting all of the Gundams, SD Gundam G-Generation is the game for you, Nadia. <laughs> but I don't like collecting Gundams, Kat. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. Anyway... Yeah, it looked really good on the Wii, too, because the best developers figured out how to downplay kind of the, the graphical disparity by kind of mixing 2D and 3D elements that, you know, having a style to it that made it less jarring that it was an SD. Yes, definitely uh, giving your game a style of its own was the best way to circumference that circumference that problem with the Wii's power. I do have a quick question for you, though. How hmm. quickly did HGTVs get adopted in Japanese in Japanese homes? Do you know? Slowly. Okay, I thought so. <laughs> very, very slowly. It was just not a thing for a long time. Because it was a huge surge at the time here, in the middle of the Wii's lifespan, I would say. And I think a lot of developers, especially, especially in Japan, were still developing for the PS2 at the time. And then they just port the game over to the Wii because that was a quick way to make more bucks. And that's why... So many games on the Wii, even though they could have been more powerful, they could have looked better. They didn't, because why bother? Who had the time? Who has the money? Japanese developers went to the Nintendo DS. That's where they went. I mean, just look at Dragon Quest. Dragon Quest Nine was not on the Nintendo Wii. Right. It was on the Nintendo DS. And that, that, that was really telling, I think. That was very telling, especially since I looked up the numbers for the Wii in Japan, and they were not great uh, compared to North America and Europe, where it really skyrocketed Japan. Uh, as you said, there was a very quick burst of, of purchasing, and then it plateaued very quickly. Well, I mean, in Japan, I just feel like people were moving over to handheld in a big way in the late 2000s between the Nintendo DS and the PSP. Like, home consoles just started to feel like a non-starter. The PS3 was really, it sold really slowly over in Japan, so, yeah. Yeah, another thing Japan had that we did not have that probably helped the handheld market over there was these crazy feature phones, which seemed to just miss our market entirely. What is a feature phone? Like a flip phone, not a smartphone. That what 
preceded. Like your no, we had like those little Nokia's that the ones that could play TV on to, to have the TV on it. No, not even that was like an iPod. That was totally separate. But oh, the way that like before you had a smartphone, did you not have like a Nokia or some brick? Yeah, no, I did. I had a flip phone, but it was like relatively simple when I was living over in Japan. Okay, because apparently Japan had some really crazy game adaptations for their flip phones. And that's just... They did, yes. Yeah, and that's just something that never happened here. The most we had was Snake. (laughs) Well, it's when they were having like before crisis and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, that is not a market that we had. Um, I had a... I had a little beepy ringtone that was the killer's Mr. Brightside. And that was my proudest thing about that phone. <laughs> One thing that Japan did have, they didn't get Dragon Quest Nine on the Wii, but they did get Dragon Quest Ten. weirdly, an MMORPG. <laughs> yes, that is a great big blank mystery in North America because we do not have Ten, and I do not think it is forthcoming. Uh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> Not now. I don't know what the player base is, actually. I'd be interested to measure it against, like, WoW and Final Fantasy fourteen. I remember my friends over in Japan were into it, the people who were really into Dragon Quest. But it was a very kind of old-fashioned MMORPG in many ways, like, more more in common with Dragon, with Final Fantasy eleven than yeah, Final Fantasy XIV. Yeah, it came out around that same time. I would say it probably has more in common with Fantasy Star Online, too, as well. Heckin' grind heavy. That's what you did. You grind and grind and grind. Yeah, I'm good. I'm fine. I, I love Dragon <laughs> Quest, but my heart belongs to fourteen. I'm good. One notable thing is, so it was around this time, and okay, like, you could argue Monster Hunter is not really an RPG. I... I it's in that zone of like, it's not an RPG, but I don't care. I'm covering it on this podcast because there's enough crossover that I and I'm personally interested in it. This was right around the time that Monster Hunter was totally blowing up in Japan. And Monster Hunter Tri came over to the Nintendo Wii. And at the time, it was like, well, that's kind of a big deal. Because Monster Hunter, one of the main hangups was that Monster Hunter was a portable game. So Americans were kind of like, well, I don't want to play it on the PSP, whatever. Mm-hmm. The Wii was a readily accessible console with a large player base. Came over to America. I don't think it sold very well. No, uh, a good friend of mine sent me a copy. And I, I appreciate that, that she did that for me. But uh, I think the biggest selling point of Try in North America was that it had it came with a classic controller. Uh, it actually came with a really good uh, classic controller. It was shaped more like a PlayStation controller versus a... Uh, the kind of crummy Wii default classic controller. I was talking earlier about how the GameCube and the PlayStation, the Wii was kind of an extension of the GameCube and the PlayStation 2 era. I think a great example of that is Tales of Symphonia, Dawn of the New World, which somehow managed to be actually a lot worse than the original Tales of Symphonia. Because even though it looked better than the original Tales of Symphonia in some ways, it didn't have like an explorable field. It was much more linear and you were just kind of clicking over to new destinations. So a lot of people found it disappointing. There was, even though there were some good RPGs on the Switch, sorry, some good RPGs on the Wii, there were some disappointments. And that's one of them where uh, where you click around instead of actually exploring on a field. Same deal with Dragon Quest Swords which is just a, an on-rails slasher where you, you swing your Wii remote like a sword and kill things instead of actually going out on a big Dragon Quest adventure. Yeah, you mentioned, I, I'm glad you brought that up because wasn't that spinoff just so perfectly symptomatic of what the Wii ultimately was where these old school games were being adapted to the silly motion control mechanics? They really were. It was like, gosh, it was like watching arcade games get ported to the Wii where you would have 
tons and tons of shooter games, tons and tons of on uh, on rails stuff like that. The the slasher Dragon Quest game being a, a good example. And yeah, you pay full price for these games that were had maybe 20 minutes worth of fun in them. Meanwhile, Muramasa the Demon Blade comes out and it's basically kind of it's an action RPG, if you could call it that. It's very much in the vein of Odin Sphere because it's by the same people, uh, Vanillaware. And that game was freaking beautiful on the Wii, even though it was an SD because they really knew how to it had a style to it and they knew how to lean into take advantage of the hardware in ways that it would actually look good. Vanillaware are just wizards at doing that the way that 13 Sentinels is Probably the best looking game of this generation, and it was on the PlayStation 4, not the PC, not the PlayStation 5. I, it just kind of makes me double take to see Vanillaware on a Nintendo system, though, because what I wouldn't give to have their older games on the Switch. And finally, there was Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn, which a lot of Fire Emblem fans will kind of swear by because they really like the Path of Radiance, Radiant Dawn games. It's, that's the Ike game, by the way. Kind of notorious for being relatively difficult. Uh, but also Fire Emblem was an er, Radiant Dawn was an early example of a core game on the Wii that just didn't sell very well. Yeah, that was the game that I don't think it was the game that put the series to sleep for a while until Awakening came out. But I don't think people were impressed with how difficult it was. And people were not very impressed with JRPGs and anime stuff in general. I feel like this was kind of going to the dark times for JRPGs and uh, criticizing things like too difficult, I don't like turn-based games, blah, 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 blah. Either way, yes, uh, I was not a huge fan of Radiant Dawn. I played it a little bit. I said, eh, good, whatever. So I lost interest in the series, and I think a lot of people lost interest, and that's why it went into hibernation for a while. It was a super dark time to be a fan of Japanese games, Nadia. Like, we were already talking about this a little bit with the Xbox 360, just this feeling that... Japan had lost its groove, that Japan only cared about handheld games. And yeah, there were still Japanese RPGs coming out for the Wii, but they were kind of in the vein of Arc Rise Fantasia, a game that was pretty C-tier ultimately and got a pretty poor localization in many respects. So it was kind of slim pickings. And you would hope you would have hoped that kind of the RPG renaissance of the PlayStation 2 in some ways would carry over to the Wii, but developers were throwing all of their resources over to the PSP, over to the DS. And not only that, they were all trying to jump on the Monster Hunter train. They were all trying to do these co-op RPG kind of uh, situations. Or they just stayed on the PlayStation 2 because the PlayStation 2 had such an enormous player base. I was still playing PlayStation 2 games in 2009, Nadia. <laughs> it makes a ton of sense if, as you said, Japan was very slow to adopt uh, HD technology to begin with. Why not stick with making play PlayStation 2 games and taking full advantage of the hardware and just making, you know, fun, good RPGs and stuff? It kind of sucked for those of us in the West, but I'm sure Japan had a good time for a while. Well, just as an example, Super Robot Wars Z, a game that could have been a perfectly fine uh, choice for the Nintendo Wii, given how similar the PlayStation 2 was. It came out on the PlayStation 2 in 2008. Yeah. You know, seven years or eight years after the original release of the PS2. So that just goes to show where the kind of the Japanese mentality was, was there were games coming out on the Wii, but usually in conjunction with a PlayStation 2 release over there. Exactly. There was just no big reason to throw your money into console development at that time. So it took a little while for Japan to warm up to HG, but they did in a big way, and I'm glad they did. And also, as you already mentioned, and I think we've talked about this in previous ones, 
anime like just hadn't caught on quite yet. It was seen as very nerdy and only like super nerds were into anime. And if you were into Japanese games and anime and you worked in the games press, you were marginalized. It was seen as kid stuff. And I think that's because Mm. there was that huge surge with Pokemon, which, of course, inspired people to bring over a ton of low rent clones. And it really saturated the airways for a long time. Then it stopped and people were tired of anime because they associated it with Pokemon and all this other junk that came out. But then people who grew up with Pokemon started to get nostalgic for it. So that's where we are now, frankly. Yeah, everybody was all in on, you know, Call of Duty and Bioshock and Gears of War and the the kind of the gray grimdark games. And so as a consequence, anime just wasn't all that popular. But Anyway, the Nintendo Wii went from about uh, 2006 to 2012. And frankly, Nintendo probably missed a trick by not making a Wii HD circa about 2010. Yes, sometimes I wonder how Nintendo could have done better with the Wii U with a follow-up for the Wii. The Wii U confused the hell out of everyone in every regard possible. And if they had just done a more powerful Wii with an HD component, uh, maybe they would have just kind of carried on until the Switch was out and the 3DS was starting to make some good money. I don't know. I can't say. I'm not Nintendo. Well, part of the problem is Nintendo's going to Nintendo, so they couldn't call it Wii HD. They had to call it Wii U and confuse the heck out of everybody. Oh, gosh, did they ever. And as I said, they relied on that casual fan base to follow them. That casual base did not follow them. And the hardcore base was mad because, again, we had this piece of hardware that was not powerful enough to run these these big third-party games, HD or not. So uh, the Wii U was marginalized very quickly. I mean, could you imagine a console that played Wii games in HD, basically? Like, there would be Wii HD games that could also be played on the Wii. It's just that they would be played in SD, right? Yeah. And so you could effectively treat the Wii HD as a PS4 Pro kind of situation. Right. And I wonder how that would have gone over, if people still would have been confused, if they wouldn't have upgraded. I don't know. Nintendo Mm. put themselves in an awkward spot with their halfway solutions. Yeah, they just kept riding the Wii because, I mean, it did sell for quite a long time. And ultimately, it was a pretty successful platform. Like, you can look back on the Wii and you can say, well, I mean, it was loaded with shovelware, the the motion controls were a gimmick, it stayed way beyond its expiration date, but I Nintendo would do the Wii again 10 times out of 10, because in 2006, when the Wii was hot, 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 Nintendo was back, baby. Nintendo had been irrelevant for practically a decade at that point. I mean, not entirely irrelevant, but... Not extremely relevant. The N64 wasn't that popular. The GameCube hadn't been that popular. So to have the Wii be a mega hit, like Nintendo needed that badly. Yes, I think those final sales for the Wii were something in the 100 million range, which is very, very good. It prints money. That was the DS gif. I remember that. They So I think that the success of the Wii plus the DS really helped bolster them because, oh gosh, they were having some real problems. Nintendo's not one to fall into financial troubles. They have they, they make they spend their money very, very smartly, but I'm sure they did not like having consoles that kept on not selling. So that was probably a relief to them. It was probably a relief to them indeed. And yet, just for all of its importance, Nadia, I just don't look back on the Wii with all that much of, of affection, you know? I wonder if it's because we can get so many of those Wii games 
like all the, a lot of the good ones were upgraded or ported or whatever. Uh, Xenoblade Chronicles being an excellent example. Super Mario Galaxy, we just got a, a port of that. So I wonder if it's just the Wii was not very good or the fact that it's so much easier to get these old games that we wanted to play but didn't play at the time. So there's no reason to look back at, say, the Wii U with any sort of affection. When I think back to my time with the Wii, I mean, certainly there were some games that I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed my time with Mario Galaxy As a great and game. New Super Mario Brothers U and uh, Twilight Princess was very good, yes. even though it was really just a GameCube game. And I would even go as far as to say Skyward Sword, you know. Um, and if I look at the RPGs, some of the RPGs that we listed, I would definitely say Xenoblade Chronicles is the class of the bunch. But, you know, Miramasa the Demon Blade was pretty good, right? Yeah, yeah. And I played a lot of Virtual Console and it reacquainted with me with a lot of classic games. I remember when Mega Man 9 came out. That oh, was a lot that of was fun. a huge, huge deal. That was, if you look at games now and how they're all sprite-based, that was Mega Man 9's doing. You're welcome. But I don't know. Like, there was a certain point, especially once I moved back to the U.S. and got an Xbox 360 and a PS3, that the Wii, the SD aspect of it was just too much of a hurdle. And there just became a point where the Wii, the motion controls felt like a hindrance rather than a help. They became annoying. Absolutely did. The, the gloss wore off quite quickly. And it was a shame for Skyward Sword, which I will defend. I think it has some great ideas, terrible execution. I am glad that they took some of those good ideas around Skyward Sword and transferred them to Breath of the Wild, particularly the kind of really personality-packed, lighthearted mood of Hyrule. They did a really good job with that. Uh, but it was not that enjoyable to play as a game because I don't want to swing my sword. I want to just kind of sit on the couch and be a veg, you know? By 2009, it was just, it felt, the console felt hilariously dated. Like three and a half years in and it just looks so old. Yeah, and I remember Reggie kind of inspiring some vitriol when he was saying things like, oh, we're not giving you a new console until the Wii se sells uh, so many million more. Uh, and by that point, no one was buying the Wii so much because, well, they had one. And as you said, it was looking a little bit outdated. Yeah. And I think people were salty because for even though it was Nintendo's Blue Ocean, people would buy this thing and they would only buy Wii Sports and Carnival games and then they wouldn't get anything else. And it's like, there are so many good games. Why aren't you playing any of the other good games? Because we're not actually that much into video games. We just wanted to play Wii Sports. It was a fun gimmick. Yeah. I know that the attach rate for the... the, the the Wii, while not as bad as maybe we initially thought, was not great, especially compared to the Switch, for example, which has a fantastic attach rate. So, yeah, there were a lot of overlooked gems on the Wii that made, and that does make me a little bit salty because they were just such good games and they faded into obscurity because they weren't Wii Sports. Yeah, of course, this is me being all gatekeepery because if you want to flip it the other way, I thought it was kind of neat that it got my parents playing video games again, that they were playing Wii Sports and having a great time, and in the mentality that video games could be accessible and fun and not like this crazy foreign thing. Yeah, I was really happy to see my parents play Wii Sports and play, basically, that was the first time my dad had played a video game since I saw him play Missile Command on the Atari 2600. If there would be one thing that I could go back and change about the Wii, and even the Wii HD, whatever, <laughs> I don't care, but... I would have more RPGs come out on the, not the virtual console, Wii Wear? 
was it called? WiiWare. You had it. WiiWare was mostly just a font for, I mean, some good indie games, but a lot of shovelware for the most part. And really the only good notable RPG, I won't call it good. The only notable RPG we got out of that was probably Final Fantasy IV The After Years. I bought every single freaking chapter of that stupid game. It, it was originally a feature phone game, going back to what we said about Japan. Yeah, so mm-hmm. they ported that to the Wii. Looked awful. If you want to play After Years now for whatever reason, go ahead and get it on the PSP Complete Collection. It at least looks decent there. It looked horrible. Of course, we've gone over how not the greatest game on Earth, but I still play bought every single chapter i played it to the end and um i'm proud of that <laughs> i love that in the notes you just put a lot of laughing under after final fantasy for the after years i bolded it too <laughs> if you want to go listen to why final fantasy for the after years was bad go check out our two-part final fantasy ranking which is available to everybody at this point okay nadia let's talk let's just wrap up our conversation about the wii's contribution to rpg history nadia what was the Wii's RPG legacy? It's funny. We were just talking about how it was a dark time for RPGs and people were not impressed with them and anime. But at the same time, that was the console that really fired up the RPG fan base as small as it was at the time and made enough noise that Nintendo said, OK, fine, we'll give you these stupid RPGs. Leave us alone. And we got them because the fans were there and the fans were extremely vocal and I'm glad that we got those games. So it was it was a, a passionate time for RPGs, I think. We were all fight we were all underdogs fighting for our favorite genre that was being ignored or streamlined out of existence. Yes, and now it's shock time all the time. <laughs> shock time all the time. Yeah, when I look back on the Wii's legacy, I a hundred percent agree that its RPG legacy is very much tied to Zito Blade Chronicles. I mean, certainly didn't get any good Super Robot Wars games. I'm FW sorry. Nia was not a good game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Pat. Sorry, I had to mention it. I had to shoehorn a mention of Super Robot Wars in there. That's fine. I remember people were so passionate and crazy for Xenoblade that they were modifying their Wii because the Wii was region locked. Oh, right. In order to be able to play the European English version of Xenoblade Chronicles, like that was a hot import item for quite a while. Like it was the game that everybody had to play. So it took on this kind of level mystique to it. It kind of did. And it reminded me of the the energy around Earthbound and how the fan base finally got people to acknowledge how great that game is. Yeah, f- even if you have a small fan base, a, a small fan base that's passionate enough can make a big difference. And they did make a big difference with the Wii because Xenoblade Chronicles is one of the games, one of the key games on that system. As for the best RPG and the Wii, I mean, we have to say that it's Xenoblade Chronicles, right? I'm going to go with Xenoblade Chronicles, frankly. Okay. So that is our Wii console RPG quest. If you have any memories about the Wii yourself, do me a favor. Send a note to cat at bloodgodpod.com. Or if you're a patron, go over to the show notes and leave a comment. Let's uh, let's remember the Wii. Maybe, maybe people do have nostalgia for it. Maybe people do feel strongly about it, but it sure... I don't know. It sure seems like it has faded in history a little bit. I'm I'm really curious to see how history will ultimately remember the Wii and the Wii U and if Wii nostalgia will end up being a thing. Okay, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, it's time for the track of the week, the segment in which we listen to a song from our favorite RPG because music is so important to understanding the genre that we love. And this week we have a song from Fire Emblem, 
specifically Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn, a game that we just talked about over on the Nintendo Wii. Let's have a listen. So, Nadia, I'm going to read directly from your notes again this time. Fun fact, if you Google this song, you get Be Prepared as your top result. <laughs> you do. Because <laughs> I was looking for information about this game. Even though I specifically Googled Lion King March, I got a whole bunch of Be Prepared. And why isn't Be Prepared in the live action movie as a question? That is what? The, it's not in the live action movie? No, they, t- the they took it out of that. On? I haven't seen the live action movie. I have no plans to, but they took it out. I don't understand. That's a huge missed opportunity because that song was actually really good it was it was pretty excellent i guess it was too nazi-ish you know some of the imagery wasn't oh, great <laughs> god no <laughs> why would you even mention that i mean they did for the cartoon they did take part of like triumph of the will and turn it into an animated sequence with scar and the hyenas so i understand where oh, they were dear coming god from. okay now i know why they took it yes. out <laughs> anyway March of the Lion King is the theme of Kangas, the lion-like leader of the Laguz Beast Tribe. Of course, you took it in a furry direction. Of course. So, Nadia, you should... uh, Kangas was actually one of my main characters that I was using a lot in one of my teams in Fire Emblem Heroes, so I'm very familiar with him. He looks like he could wreck a lot of stuff because he is a human, but he is also a lion, like he can turn into a lion. And even when he's a human, Mm -hmm. he looks like he weighs like 50,000 pounds. He looks like you can't move him. Insanely strong defense, really good counterattacker. So that when I think of lions, I think of strong defense and counterattacking. But whatever. Well, I mean, have you ever seen a male lion? They're uh, they can get pretty big and nasty. Oh yeah, but I always think of them as attacking, not so much counterattacking. Eh, whatever. Anyway, he wishes for peace between the Lagoos and the human-like Bjork. But as his music suggests, he's not a pushover. The song has a huge push of energy behind it, then drops to some primal-sounding drums at around the 45-second mark. I think I heard a didgeridoo in there, too, albeit faintly, didgeridoos rock. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun song. It's a really fun song. I really like the change in the middle. It's, a, it's an exciting song. Radiant Dawn was composed by Yoshito Hirano, uh, Chika Sekigawa, and Naoko Mitome. Series composer Yuka Shujioko is credited as sound supervisor... Yoshito Hirano has composed several Intelligent Systems games and helps out on other Nintendo games like Origami King. Chiki Sekigawa also composed music for Super Paper Mario. Oh, we didn't even mention Super Paper Mario with the Nintendo Wii, but that's because it was a platform, it was a platform. Not really it an RPG. RPG. Yeah, it was like going, uh, and that was kind of an annoying thing because I remember when Super Paper Mario came out on the Wii, like everybody's like, why isn't it an RPG? I'm confused. I was never a huge fan of the game, to be honest with you. Why not? Uh, I, I found the art direction very boring. And I was, at that point, I was still had nostalgia for Thousand Year Door, and I just thought that it was disappointing to not have an RPG going on. And I thought the Wii Remote shaking gimmick was so stupid. See, it was always down to the gimmicks, wasn't it? It really was. And you could tell it had been shoehorned in because the game was originally for the GameCube. Okay, that's our track of the week. If you would like to contribute a track of the week your own, send a note to cat at bloodgodpod.com. Leave a note on our Patreon or send me a message over on our Discord, which can be accessed by everybody from the $1 level and up. Okay, let's head over to the mailbag. We have a mailbag channel over on our Discord, and one of our patrons was like, how does this channel work? Well, the way that it works is that if you leave a message or a note in that particular channel, we'll read it here on the podcast. So that's how it goes. That's a a pretty simple set of instructions right there. 
Indeed. Okay. Well, we have one. We have a we have a message. <laughs> and this one is from Matcom. It's in regards to our 2021 RPG preview. I would say I'm most looking forward to Baldur's Gate 3. Should it actually come out next fall? I think seeing a meaty, familiar, and comforting RIP really stick the landing is exactly what 2021 needs to distance us all from the prior year's hellscape and disappointments like Cyberpunk. Ouch. The game is absolutely gorgeous as well. I might just give in and get the early access. That sounds that sounds like a pretty good idea. Since Hades, since the success of Hades, I'm a little more curious about open access, early access, and being part of the community, being a little bit a part of the development and the QA. But uh, I don't know if it's something I have the time for or the energy for, but I appreciate that it's there. I think with Baldur's Gate 3, people were pointing out that it's maybe a little too similar to Divinity Original Sin 2. Fair, it does have pretty much the same opening. And also everything's on fire all the time. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you just got to have things on fire. Including your party members. Oh no, that's no good. I remember that there, there's a very specific section in one of the early dungeons where it was just tons of traps and there's oil everywhere. And if you put one foot wrong, it can just explode into fire that annihilates your entire party. And the autosaves was very wonky at the time. So I lost like more than an hour of progress as a result of that freaking dungeon. Ouch. But that is the kind of thing I would hope that early access could alleviate. Aruka has some thoughts on the lesser Final Fantasy games episode. In Final Fantasy XI, they say, I was wondering going in what was going to be said about FF11. I have to say that for when it came out, it pushed MMOs in ways that they hadn't been pushed before. It had quests. Other MMOs didn't have quests. One thing done on the podcast was comparing it to World of Warcraft, but FF11 came out two and a half years before WoW and just three years after Vanilla EverQuest. FF11 was extremely friendly to new players compared to its peers. The graphics were amazing and unseen before in the MMO space. For its time, the grouping in FF11 was great. No one had looking for group systems for many years, and the world felt amazing to explore for any FF fan. As mentioned, the job system was fun. My one gripe with FF14 is how they've dropped combining class abilities for customization. And they also have some thoughts for FF15. Everything Kat said about FF15 was on point. Haha. <laughs> 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 I bounced off the game because I didn't like any of the dude bro vibe I got from the characters. For me, it felt like they took the overused coming of age trope and made it even worse. Alternate take on my FF15 feelings, old man yells at young characters. <laughs> well, Noctis is the kind of character who needs to be yelled at. Truth. And I didn't really get a dude bro feeling from them. It was just all uh, boys being pals, right? I honestly did not get a dude bro vibe from them. And that's part of the reason why I like the game so much. When you're when you got four boys and they're and, and Ignis scolds Noctis for not having his button sewn on properly. And Noctis is like, uh, and Ignis is like, oh, fine, I'll do it for you. And then they'd go and talk about Luna Freya's wedding dress. That's not dude bro. They were cool guys. I like them so much. And Prompto had a camera. Prompto had a camera they never put down. <laughs> because they're like, what What can Prompto do? Prompto doesn't have a thing that people like. Uh, I guess he's a photographer now. I hear, though, and I think you backed this up, his DLC was actually some of the best in the game. It was all right. It was like Metal Gear Solid. It was weird. Yeah, I know it was snowy, and I'm thinking of Shadow Moses Island now. The only reason that I liked it was because it had the, the Beatrix character, the Dragoon girl. Oh, Ariana or something like that. Uh, she was a high wind. So, yeah, she was a Dragoon. And I think at some point he's riding around on a snowmobile. And it's like it was Metal Gear Solid. It was very strange. Final Fantasy 15 was a weird game. Kind of makes me think of The Shining, too. Oh, man. Can you imagine The Shining <laughs> and Final Fantasy combined? 
Let's do it. All right. That is our mailbag for the week. If you have mail for us, again, catatbluggodpod.com or leave a note on our Patreon or drop something in our mailbag channel over in the Discord and we may read your message on the show. Okay, that is it for this week's episode. If you enjoy the show, leave us a positive review. Follow us on all the social media channels at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Also, if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. You can support us from $1 and up. $5 gets you access to our Discord and also access to television of our Blood God. We have four episodes in the can for our Witcher Watch. You can go listen to the first episode for free. And our $10 level is Pantheon of the Blood God. The first episode is Skies of Arcadia, and that is available for our patrons. Okay, we'll be back next week, as always, to talk more about RPGs and the genre we love. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening and happy adventuring. Thank you.